Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Ducks Confidential. After a bit of a summer break, we're back here on the podcast. I'm James Creppy, the Oregonian and Oregon Live's Ducks beat reporter. Uh, quite a lot has gone on since last time we had the podcast, so definitely want to catch up a bit. But really, the focus of this episode is uh, on this Tuesday, August the 11th, is to face the short-term major issue facing the Pac-12 as we find it today, where the presidents and chancellors are meeting uh, midday Tuesday and potentially deciding on the fate of the fall sports season, the fall college football season, and then obviously the ramifications thereafter. After that decision is made, we'll have another podcast to identify and Certainly, if things are canceled, whether it be today or in the days ahead or weeks ahead, or even just delayed until a later time, we'll have plenty of time to examine the fallout of whatever decisions are made here in the coming hours, days, and weeks. But it's important to look back first, and that's really where this podcast is going to focus, is looking back on how did we get here exactly? Uh, Whether the decisions are made, as I say, today, tomorrow, a week from now, or two weeks from now, or a month from now, how did it reach this point? And unfortunately for college sports, it's in large part because of a massive leadership vacuum that in part is by design within college sports, and that's because of the structure of the NCAA and the power hierarchy to the conferences, uh, including the Pac-12, but yes, also the other Power Five conferences and the Group Five conferences, the FCS, and et cetera, down to Division Two and Division Three and NAIA. But also because we got here over the last two to three months in particular, because amidst that leadership vacuum, that that the existence of that and the structure of that existed in good times and in bad. But the individual actors and decision makers and their actions along the way is still their own doing. And we're going to look back here to an edition of the podcast that we had in mid-May and tackle some of the same issues that we identified and discussed on that podcast nearly three months ago to the day. And it underlines and underscores, really, in case you haven't listened to that episode, I urge you to do so, uh, so you can see exactly how we identified and laid out for you and tackled many of the major issues that college sports had to address, and that unfortunately, as of August the 11th, still remain unanswered. And you wonder why the season is on the cusp and on the precipice of heading into the abyss, and being canceled in mass, it's because these issues that not only we identified on a podcast here for the Oregonian and Oregon Live, but I've discussed on my radio show, and plenty of people, myself included, have written about exhaustively and tackled and talked to experts about and talked to athletic directors and conference commissioners about for months that these issues are still undecided. And obviously the players' movement, that has gone on the last several weeks, both within the Pac-12 and then across the country, has very much been fostered in part by a frustration over a number of issues, but including testing, and we'll get to that. But to go back to the podcast and the various issues we discussed on May the 18th, 
we were talking about at that time, how does the University of Oregon define an open campus and what does significantly modifying an event in terms of large gatherings might mean in the state of Oregon when it came time in September or October, any time in the fall really, for potentially having live sporting events with fans in attendance. Well, the issue of how we're defining an open campus is still a little bit under review. I'll say a little bit because uh, University of Oregon President Michael Schill issued a letter to students just yesterday outlining the university's current plans for uh, mandates of testing for all students who will be living on campus upon arrival and then at least one other time subsequently in the fall term and that there will be uh, mass voluntary testing availability uh, and scale and uh, for the university would have a testing system in place to handle uh, a sustained period of a thousand tests per day and that they're still formulating plans and finalizing plans for all the things that go into on-campus operations, on-campus classes, um, size of class limitations and the rest. But they've detailed and discussed some of this for some time now over the summer, but that by the end of August they intend to uh, basically lay out the final plans, understanding that due to the uncertainty and the evolving environment that is due to the coronavirus pandemic, that things may be subject to change, but that ultimately they're proceeding uh, cautiously forward and that they do have the luxury of time compared to some schools who are on semester's calendars and are either already underway in their academic terms or soon to be underway, and they will learn from their peers across the country in that regard. But that basically every school in America, college and university uh, at least, is operating under some semblance of an open campus, quote-unquote, but a hybrid model of online learning, especially for large-scale lecture halls uh, and lecture courses where clearly large <laughs> large lectures and numbering into, well into the hundreds are not going to be happening much, if at all, uh, anywhere. And that smaller classes and breakout sessions uh, might be done on a much more selective basis uh, where they can allow for physical distancing and mass and all those sorts of things to be uh, far more effective. Having said all that, that was one of the things that was a barrier to entry for athletics was the camp, the presidents and chancellors had mandated and stated many times across the country that campuses had to be open. But how that was defined was an issue and still remains to be an issue, frankly. But now that answer has largely been uh, solidified in that everyone's kind of redefining the, the rules as far as what an, an open campus is, but recognizing that, unfortunately, we're still amidst a pandemic and Colleges and universities, as long as well as uh, secondary schools, are going to have to figure out a way, uh, if they want to be open at all, to mix in some semblance of online learning, maybe limitations in time, maybe limitations in class size, uh, but there may have to be hybrids along the way, or in some select areas, maybe folks try to uh, go at a traditional format as best they can if they're able to do so, but those are ultimately local choices. To the significantly modified term that was thrown around uh, by Governor Kate Brown and the Oregon Health Authority back in May at the time, so we're talking about over three months now, uh, in terms of the restrictions to large gatherings in the state. Obviously, since then, the governor said plenty of things back then in June, in early June, when trends were still going well in terms of the rate of spread of, of COVID-19, that things were looking good and the uh, students, uh, the athletes, excuse me, it was uh, returned to campus 
for voluntary workouts at Oregon and Oregon State and throughout the Pac-12 for that matter in mid-June, some later in June, and that that has been well underway. Obviously, trends have since gone in the other direction. Large gatherings of any kind are still are under further restriction, uh, and that obviously the Pac-12 has since gone to a conference-only schedule. The season isn't going to start until September 26th. Again, the contingent on the Pac-12 deciding to still start on September 26th and have a season in the fall at all, uh, but as of where we stand this morning. But that issue has, at least so far as of now, been largely answered. Uh, if there are games in the fall, there is still a little bit of discussion in terms of if fan attendance were to be a thing. But first and foremost, before we get to the fan attendance and what altering those events and how many people can fit in any stadium anywhere, you first have to answer if there's even going to be games. Uh, so before we're even going to go down that road and go on a whole tangent and and a rabbit hole that frankly may be a moot point, we're just going to leave it as the answer to the question has still, it's been more restrictive now than it was even in May, which is unfortunate. Things were going in a, in a positive direction in terms of lowering the rate of spread and things looked like maybe, just maybe, as we discussed in May, the definition of a large gathering might be lower and that this, the definition of physical distancing might be lower than we knew it at that time. Well, unfortunately, three months later and midway through August, it's not. Uh, and it's, if anything, it may be even more restrictive. Uh, so nothing we can do at this point uh, to correct that uh, in the short term. You hope to see modifications in that regard in the long term. But if there are any sporting events held uh, in college sports in the fall in the state of Oregon, large gatherings will still clearly have restrictions. Uh, and will, time will tell, one, if the events happen in the first place, and two, if fans are even allowed at all, let alone uh, under severe uh, physical distancing guidelines and uh, heavy restrictions in terms of the number of people in attendance. But again, first and foremost, whether the games will even happen has to be addressed first. So until that happens, once we know if the games are happening, we can have a whole podcast dedicated to how many people can fit in stands and, and the like. To the major issues, though, that we identified and discussed three months ago that largely are still unanswered or had been unanswered but have kind of just answered themselves due to the actions that have transpired uh, not only the last three months but really over the last week or two. We talked about liability and indemnification and what would happen in college sports on that issue of how do you play college sports when the college athletes don't have unions, they're not employees uh, by legal definition, and therefore uh, they are not subject to a collective bargaining agreement. So all the pro leagues at that time were still going about their negotiations. We are where we are now. The pro sports have largely returned. They're underway. They're approaching playoffs. They're in playoffs, whatever the case may be. And they brokered deals between a player's association and management and ownership to deal with testing, to deal with liability, to deal with and reach agreements. Well, you don't have that in the collegiate realm. And lo and behold, on the liability and indemnification issue, after we identified it and not only discussed it on the podcast, but I discussed it again on my radio show before that, had asked Larry Scott and Greg Sankey about it and Rob Mullins about it in May in the case of Mullins and in April in the case of Scott and Sankey. And everybody at the time had 
kind of deferred on the liability issue uh, and said, well, we're not there yet, or we haven't talked to actuaries and addressed that just yet. And in April, you could kind of understand why that was the case, because they hadn't even laid out a preseason plan for returning to sports. Uh, In May, it was a little bit less understandable because the NCAA was going to be voting to have the preseason calendar uh, for football come into play for June, only a matter of days thereafter. Uh, And then obviously in the Pac-12, it was mid-June. And again, trends were going well at the time. But once athletes returned, there was still a little bit of ambiguity in terms of liability and identification in how college sports as a apparatus, as a system, as a whole, and then as individual schools and institutions and conferences would handle it. And what we've learned, obviously, since is that some schools, big and small, did not handle it gracefully at all. That you had these liability waivers that some were just outright labeled as such as liability waivers at SMU in Texas, at the University of Tennessee, Ohio State, who insists that their Buckeye Pledge was not a liability waiver despite asking for uh, the signatures of parents if the athlete was under 18 years old, and that numerous uh, legal experts had weighed in and said, this walks like a duck, quacks like a duck, uh, and has all the markings of one. This is a liability waiver. Uh, I mean, or at least it's an attempt to be one. Only after all of these documents came out, and uh, side note, the University of Oregon had a COVID-19 form, but it was four or five bullet points basically for the athlete to acknowledge and recognize that this is something that's going on and the university is asking for uh, Biden's by a certain degree of protocols, but didn't even mention the word responsibility, let alone any kind of issues of liability or waiving of legal rights or anything to that end, made no requirement for parents to sign it for anybody who's under 18 years old. So it was very much just an acknowledgement of the greater situation and environment that uh, uh, athletes were operating in, but by no means would be construed as a liability waiver. Having said that, that issue came up later in May and into June when athletes returned to campuses. And then a lot of blowback, obviously, thereafter from plenty of folks, including parents, including athletes, that hey, wait a minute, you know, you're asking, the school is asking me to waive my legal rights here uh, amidst the pandemic. I'm not sure I'm very comfortable with that. And obviously, since conferences have stepped in and said, and told their schools to stop doing it, schools have basically been embarrassed into what, destroying them uh, and saying that, oh, no, well, we, 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 we didn't mean it to come off that way and, and come up with convenient excuses. And finally, only last week, did the NCAA step in, uh, and they've been very much asleep at the switch in all of this, and they finally step in in early August to say liability waivers are not permissible and unenforceable. Well, those were things that, frankly, the college athletes deserved to know back in June when they returned to campus, or before they even returned to campus. And if it was for voluntary workouts, and you want to say, all right, well, at least then when summer access started, fine. But once mandated workouts began, I would argue even before voluntary, but especially once mandatory workouts began, that was an issue that needed to be clarified in in absolutely crystal clear to everyone within the NCAA from the schools, colleges, conferences, and the like. 
and to the athletes and their families that any form of that nature would absolutely not be permissible, would be unenforceable, and should not exist. And only last week was that communicated from the NCAA. And numerous schools had gone about doing that previously. Uh, And again, deservedly so, received a lot of negative blowback on that issue. Having said that, all that aside for a moment, it's still the liability issue is now part of why we find ourselves uh, in this position in college sports where the presidents and chancellors at various different conferences are dealing with and tackling the question of whether or not to have a fall season. And we've seen all throughout the FCS numerous conferences cancel their seasons, postpone to the spring. We've seen uh, the Mid-American Conference, the MAC, and the Mountain West Conference postpone their fall seasons and fall football seasons, also with the hope of playing in the spring, mainly because of testing capacity, resources, and finances available to cover testing, and also for liability. Because even if they don't want to have a waiver and say that wouldn't be morally, ethically, or even perhaps legally viable, uh, nevertheless, also having athletes play without one, uh, we don't want to have one. But because we don't want to have one, it presents a major issue here uh, from a legal standpoint. Should they uh, come down with this virus and suffer uh, severe or potentially deadly health consequences, institutionally, that's a major hurdle. Uh, for those schools. So that's why so many have been tackling it and so many have been electing to cancel and postpone to the spring so far. And again, the Big Ten, the Pac-12, and the other power conferences tackling this issue in the days ahead. We also talked about back in May about force majeure and contract law and potential changes to non-conference games. Well, as we know by now, from the decision a month ago from the Pac-12 and the Big Ten, which has now gone literally nationwide, every single league, even the Mountain West, uh, before it canceled uh, its season, had gone with a comp- a altered schedule. The power conferences had gone largely conference only. The Big Ten and the Pac-12 first, followed by the SEC, then the ACC, uh, well, one day before the SEC, the ACC announcing it would go with 10 conference games plus one non-conference game. The SEC, 10 conference games, and the Big 12 with nine conference games and a 10th non-conference game. Uh, but all of the group of five conferences keeping conference games and either one or two or maybe even as many as four non-conference games, leaving it up to the institutions. The issue there... We'll start for the smaller schools first. Why they were allowing for a greater number of non-conference games. One, because obviously they make less money than the Power 5 schools. Their television revenue would be less. It would help recover some of their costs greater. Second, because they needed to preserve their rights to sue the Power 5 schools for breach of contract under the force majeure clauses in those non-conference game contracts that we identified that I wrote about for the Oregonian and Oregon Live back in April when we reviewed Oregon's non-conference game contracts with North Dakota State, Ohio State, and Hawaii. Uh, And obviously Oregon State also had it with uh, Oklahoma State, Colorado State, Portland State as well. But it was not just for uh, the force majeure clauses there that was part of it. Again, it was also financial due to uh, revenue losses with television and the like uh, for the smaller schools. 
why they kept more non-conference games, whereas the Big Ten or the Pac-12 or the SEC, who didn't even keep non-conference games on their schedule, why it was less an issue for them was they were trying to cut back uh, on the volume of games, still have a season, but they didn't need to worry about having a non-conference. Now, that's still presented until now cancellations by the MAC and the Mountain West and potentially by the power conferences as well. Until that point, the issue of force majeure and breach of contract was still very much on the table. And you had, obviously, if you've checked out the stories throughout the summer uh, from myself and Ken Go and John Canzano and others and Nick Daschle, on the force majeure issue, Portland State's athletic director had said she had every intention of pursuing payment from Oregon State and Arizona for breach of contract under force majeure because at the time, Arizona and Oregon State still said we intend to play starting September the 26th uh, a Pac-12 games. So the force majeure clause, sometimes known uh, colloquially as a uh, act of God clause, lays out all these reasons under which a contract can be broken and a game cannot be played. But if it doesn't say pandemic and there isn't an active order from government to prevent it from happening, well, how can you say it was impossible to play due to the pandemic, but if you played a week after you were supposed to play this school or potentially in some conferences uh, the same exact week because the Big Ten released its schedule and didn't even announce an initial delay at first. It may eventually delay, uh, but at the time had not announced a delay. How can you say it's impossible to play your non-conference game if you're playing a week before or the same week as when you were originally scheduled to do so? So force majeure and the contract law issue was obviously tackled. Obviously, again, now that some conferences have outright canceled, they've lost their ability uh, to pursue those uh, legal fights because you, you can't say, please pay me for a game that didn't happen when you didn't even end up playing yourself, for one. Uh, and it may, again, all be a moot point if all of fall football season ends up getting canceled eventually. It's really a moot point. It also, though, feeds into contract law and some of the changes that came into the scheduling adjustments that you saw throughout the country uh, was there is a minimum number of live television hours or inside the industry is referred to as inventory of live inventory that networks must provide uh, in the sports realm. So in order to charge the premium that they do as sports, live sports networks, uh, they guarantee a certain minimum number of live broadcast game hours. And obviously games can be canceled due to weather, due to natural disasters, hurricanes, tornadoes, whatever the case may be anyway. So the number is always significantly lower than the number of live hours that ordinarily in a regular year games would be scheduled for anyway. So a major network like an ESPN or Fox or you name it wouldn't have to worry about that being a problem. Well, amid a pandemic where sports was shut down, obviously it changes the conversation a bit. And for the conference networks, it really changed the conversation. And what it came into play for the Pac-12 was the SEC and the ACC are partnered with ESPN, and the Big Ten is partnered with Fox for their conference networks. But the Pac-12, as we all know, owns the network outright. As a result, the network's distribution contracts with 
itself and telecommunication providers, the cable and satellite companies and other telecom companies, the conference is the one on the hook for fulfilling that contract. Well, when cutting back football, the football schedule from 12 games down to 10, that greatly lowers the number of games that would be available for the Pac-12 network to air. And I'd asked Larry Scott about this and the number of games uh, that would be mandated to fit into the schedule and how does that play into things. And the long story short of it, without going too far into the weeds, is 44 games from the Pac-12 that the Pac-12 has the broadcast rights to are due to and assigned to ESPN and Fox. So ordinarily, in a regular year, traditionally speaking, the Pac-12 has 78 games that it has available, that it has the broadcast rights to, ordinarily speaking, uh, according to, to Larry. So that's in the entire conference schedule. Well, 44 are assigned to ESPN and Fox. Well, in a season that got cut down to 10 conference games, that means there's only 60 games available in totality. If 44 are still due to ESPN and Fox, that leaves the Pac-12 network with 16 games. Well, if you're playing 10 games over 11 weeks, 16 games means you're still getting a game a week, and in half the season you're going to have two games a week. Not great but at least viable. But the reason why, ultimately, why did they go to 10 conference games as opposed to a full league round robin of 11 was not because they wanted an even balance of five home and five road because one could truly make the argument, why not just go to the 11 and play the whole league? I mean, it really solves a lot of problems, quite honestly. It was because they wanted the flexibility and the timing, but above all, they needed to add a game in order to ensure that they would meet the minimum threshold for the television contracts. And again, the Pac-12 owns the conference network. Uh, So again, this comes up with the Pac-12 conversation specifically, but this also applies to some of the other leagues. There was reporting out of the Big 12 that the Big 12 had to add and have at least a 10-game schedule because if it's stuck with uh, its conference-only schedule and played nine games, that it would not have satisfied its obligations by contract for television. Now, again, if the if these seasons gets canceled and you say, all right, well, you're doing all these things and, and reinventing the schedule in order to meet these contracts, what happens then if the if if all the games are canceled, the season's canceled, then what? Then you're you're breaking the contract another way. Yes, but then you're talking about force majeure that way and business interruption and other things that come into play. And again, hopefully, we never have to tackle those issues. Uh, hopefully, somehow, some way, college sports figures out a way to actually hold the season this fall, uh, even a greatly cut back one. But if there isn't, we will tackle those issues in the days and weeks ahead. But we identified this issue as a whole in the non-conference context months ago. Here is where we are now, and at least gotten some answers. Now to the testing issue. That obviously everyone in every context and every walk of life, not just in sports, private industry, governments and the like, the world over has tackled the testing issue of capacity, availability, cost. What happens when an athlete tests positive or any student at any school at any university tests positive? What is the protocols? What happens? 
uh, what, what goes into it. Well, obviously still some areas where questions have to be answered, but also an area where there's also been significant uh, progress and a lot of answers have already been provided and that obviously there's a lot of protocols for isolation and further testing and confirming the validity of a positive test and then needing multiple negative tests thereafter in order to resume athletics activities or games or practices or whatever the case may be, depending on the league you're talking about and the league's protocols. But ultimately, to the testing uh, capacity and frequency, when the Pac-12 resumed for workouts in June, mid-June, they were requiring testing for active infection and antibody infection upon arrival, and then some degree of testing thereafter. Other leagues initially were a bit lower than that, and then some basically got in line with it. And then there was a lot of ambiguity as to from one league to the other, power conference to group of five conference to others as to the volume of testing that was being done and what the protocols would be for not only a positive test, but for close contact by one player to another, even if they didn't test positive, if they were in proximity with and had contact with somebody who had tested positive. And that had varied a bit. And that was part of why, ultimately, uh, conferences rationalized going to a conference-only schedule was because, one, you could cut down on the number of games. Two, you could create some flexibility. And three, the uniform protocols within a league would allow for uh, at least a little bit of a greater degree of comfort and assurance that everybody was acting within the same rules and that if things needed to be rescheduled with that increased flexibility, the conference could have a far greater role and degree of control compared to a non-conference game where you say even if everybody agreed to play by the uh, and abide by the same protocols related to COVID and testing and contract tracing and, and all the rest on the health front, rescheduling a game in non-conference amidst a conference schedule would be very difficult for two separate conferences to agree to. So, alas, we end up on conference schedules. But nevertheless, the testing issue and uh, on the health front as a whole in a greater scale is still something where the NCAA and the conferences, including as the Pac-12, in some areas they have done well uh, on the testing front early. And some schools that had very large-scale outbreaks among athletes, including football players, when they first returned, mainly because of going to social gatherings, house parties, bars, and the like, even if those have largely been curbed by now, and many schools have had, uh, even that had very large numbers of, uh, or maybe even a full team outbreak uh, early on, are now very much under control. The issue of testing, frequency of testing, mandates of testing, and uniform standards, even within a conference, is still a bit ambiguous. Having said all that, and the issue that we identified also in the spring, three-plus months ago, of what happens for players who can't play because they're international students and they can't get back, that's something that's still being explored in some schools in the country as far as what they're going to do and, and what they can do for those athletes, if anything. and Or for the athletes who won't do it and who elect to opt out or would like to opt out because they have an underlying health condition. What happens for those athletes? Well, the Pac-12, starting with Stanford and then the conference as a whole, 
has said that uh, it was the first to say that if you opt out um, and you have an issue and you or or you just are electing you're not comfortable uh, playing your sport and you elect to opt out, you can do so and your scholarship is protected. Since then, that has been the NCAA's call across the board. But this was a very late decision that should have been reached far, far earlier in order to, again, provide information to all the athletes and their families far earlier in the process. This came far too late, when, including when athletes were already back on campus, including those with underlying health conditions were already back on campus for not just voluntary workouts, but for mandatory workouts. These were things that needed answers that we discussed and identified months ago that were only getting answers with great certainty over the last week. And obviously, over the last couple of weeks, we've seen the national movements from within the Pac-12 players, other conferences, and now into a full-blown nationwide movement of players asking for a number of things. And again, for those who've seen those stories, we're we're not going to go down the full tangent of all the various player demands uh, and where they were versus where they are now and how they've morphed and the various movements have, have grown together. Ultimately, some of the major things that the players were asking for was about testing, uniform health and safety protocols and standards uh, for third-party medical uh, examiners, doctors, whatever the case may be, to be involved in the process uh, to ensure uh, that everything is on the up and up and it's not just the the school creating any kind of uh, uh, appearance of pressure or or the like uh, in the process. And about opting out and what happens to athletes who elect to do so. And with that, about eligibility. And whether you opt out or not, uh, or if the season is canceled or not, what happens for those athletes? If you're a senior in football and the season gets canceled or you opt out um, by choice, uh, whether you have a, a health condition or not, you just choose to opt out. Or the season gets canceled, is this it for you? Or is your eligibility restored and preserved? Well, these are big questions that, again, needed answers well before today. And on the eligibility front, the NCAA, the Division I Council, which is composed of athletic directors, will be having a meeting tomorrow, August 12th, about that. Fall camps were already supposed to be open. In some places, they are. Preseason practices are underway. And in some places, yes, in the case of Oregon, full practices are not yet underway. They would be starting next week. They were supposed to have started already, but they got delayed due to the season being delayed and the conference-only schedule. But nevertheless, these answers should have been provided by the NCAA months ago. In order to be transparent and fair and upfront to all the athletes involved, thousands of athletes across the country. So you, whether, no matter where you come down on and what you may or may not agree with, the players and their various demands uh, as part of their movements over the last couple of weeks, you may not agree with everything they were asking for. Even all the players don't agree with some of what all their peers were asking for. That's fine. But on the issue of health and safety or the issue of, hey, what about eligibility here? Because in the spring when the NCAA stepped in and canceled the men's and women's basketball tournaments, 
canceled spring sports championships, and then obviously all conferences canceled their spring sports seasons, the NCAA as a whole, which is really, again, athletic directors, conference commissioners, presidents and chancellors, the various groups that make up boards of directors and councils, had emergency meetings very quickly and addressed the issues of restoring eligibility for spring sports athletes very quickly so that they could make decisions and know about their futures as you know very very fast in the grand scheme of things i mean on a relative basis you know it wasn't the next day or two days later but in some cases it was only a matter of days on on some fronts regarding a uh, uh, recruiting legislation and then eventually on the eligibility bit all right it took a couple of weeks but it didn't take two and three and four months it took a few weeks and then they did do right by the spring sports athletes well, again, all right, in April and May, when trends were going well, did the powers that be within the NCAA structure necessarily have to think about and plan for if the fall season didn't happen, this is what we need to do with eligibility? Perhaps not. But especially once things shifted in June in terms of the rate of spread of COVID-19, and there were hot spots throughout the country in every which region, including Southern California, including Arizona, uh, they needed to start the contingency plan for what happens if the fall gets away from them and cancellations have to happen or just delays have to happen. What do we tell the athletes in terms of if you opt out, what happens? In terms of eligibility, whether you opt out or the season gets canceled, what happens? These were things that needed answers, and they needed them long ago. And they're still not answered today. And practices in some parts of the country, in some conferences, at some schools, are well underway. And that's not doing right by anybody. That's completely unjustified and unfair. So even if the NCAA does the right thing here by the fall athletes in the grand scheme of things, it will be very much a day late. It may not be a full dollar short, but it will be more than a day late in the process. On that front, lastly, and we'll wrap up this edition of the podcast on this, if players opt out, if the season gets canceled or delayed or pushed to the spring, we will tackle this at length should that occur. But one thing to bear in mind now, as these players' movements clearly grew in power and strength in numbers uh, over the last couple of weeks and potentially could be enormous in the weeks and months and years ahead, one thing to bear in mind in the near term is if things move to the spring, at least on paper, we'll talk about the viability of that and how it may not be so viable in the long scheme of things uh, at a later date if we ever have to address it. Bear in mind that name image likeness legislation, which is going through Congress and going through the NCAA's uh, process of approval as well and, and formulations, is due to be voted on in January and finalized next June of 2021 and go into effect in July, July 1 of 21. So moving anything to the spring, any player, whether they're players who are draft eligible or not, in football or basketball or any sport, frankly, would have all the incentive to essentially hold out for at least July of 21, because then name image likeness legislation kicks in and they would be able to 
uh, profiteer off of their name, image, and likeness, uh, which they know is coming. And you would be hard-pressed to fault any of them for feeling that way. Uh, Obviously, athletes have long asked for uh, greater degrees of compensation. Some have been asking for direct pay, including as part of the recent players' movements. Again, that's for a separate topic, a separate discussion entirely. But the point is, in some of the issues we're discussing of testing, of some of the demands, why players are upset and the like, and the fallout of all this for college sports, well, one of the things that may happen if things get delayed and moving to the spring, even if it's not totally viable, but if that's something that moves to on paper, then one of the next talking points will be, why would any player want to play in the spring if they're a fall sport athlete? Because they'd say, wait a minute, why do I want to do this twice in the span of one calendar year for one and two above all else? Why would I want to play a season, especially potentially my senior season, before only a couple of months from now, name, image, likeness will come through, and if I can hold out for that and I'm still eligible, I can make a few bucks too. And that would greatly help me and maybe my family, depending on who I am and and what my uh, marketability might be. But again, that's a topic for another day. We look back there as a whole on the various issues we discussed in mid-May. We'll get back to having uh, at least a weekly podcast here on Ducks Confidential going forward. And hopefully, hopefully the next edition is to address what we hope is only a delay or maybe just a a delayed decision regarding the fall season for the Pac-12. But if the Pac-12 ultimately makes decisions uh, for postponement or outright cancellation of the fall season and the like, We'll address that and the fallout of that going forward as well. Right here for the Oregonian and Oregon Live. For this edition of Ducks Confidential, I'm James Crepia signing off.